It's 1877, and Finnis L. Bates sits anxiously at his friend's bedside. The night ahead seems endless. The sound of the Bosque River winding its way through the mountains trickles into the log house, interrupting his thoughts. Over the years, he has become good friends with John St. Helen. Though at first it was an unlikely companionship, Bates enjoys the man's mild manner and eccentricities. St. Helen lies on the bed unconscious. Bates watches intently for any sign of life. He has witnessed a disease ravage St. Helen and watched the usually energetic man wither away until he finally takes to his deathbed. At least, that's what Bates thinks of his friend. Yes, a little strange with an air of mystery hovering over him, but nevertheless, mild-mannered and full of life. But now, he questions whether he really knows St. Helen, and if it was, in fact, all an act. He has known that's not his real name for a while, but Bates assumed St. Helen was just another man choosing to live on the periphery. It's not really that unusual. They live in the small town of Granbury on the frontiers of Texas, far away from the watchful eyes of authorities or the expectations of society. The only things watching you out there are the mountains. They loom over you every waking moment, and when you are dying, they watch over you still. If you want to disappear, Granbury is the place to do it. Just roll into town one day and reinvent yourself as a tobacco or whiskey merchant with a new name. Bates assumed wrong. It is a twist in the story of their friendship Bates did not see coming. Just moments earlier, St. Helen made a deathbed confession that shocks Bates and will shock the whole of America if it ever gets out. Bates looks at the picture he is holding in his hand. St. Helen told him where to find it. It is of a young man with dark curly hair and penetrating eyes. A picture of John Wilkes Booth, the renowned actor and assassin of President Abraham Lincoln. By all accounts, Booth was killed at the Garrett Farm in Virginia on April 26, 1865, 12 days after the assassination of the president. That's what the newspapers printed and it's what the authorities reported. St. Helen says that's not true, that he is John Wilkes Booth. Believing himself to be dying, St. Helen tells Bates he escaped capture and has been living out his days in Granbury ever since. If St. Helen dies tonight, Bates will be left with questions he will never get the answers to. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of John Wilkes Booth, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying. It's about the assassination of one of the most prominent presidents of the United States of America and the turmoil and uncertainty that followed. It tells the story of a nation divided and fearful of more war, and of one man's obsession with redirecting the course of American history. It's about the hunt to find him, the discovery of his co-conspirators, and the doubts that continue to plague the last moments of the assassin, and one man's need to confess all before it is too late. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. To everyone's surprise, St. Helens survives the night. And over the next few weeks, makes a full recovery. He promises to tell all to Bates. Slowly, over a number of years, he gives Bates an account of what happened immediately after he assassinated President Lincoln at Ford's Theater on April 14th, 1865. Within that account, he details how he escapes from Washington, D.C., while the entire force of the American army is put on high alert and given one mission, to capture John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators. St. Helen tells Bates of those co-conspirators, who they were and the extent of their involvement in the plot to kill Lincoln. He makes a shocking claim that other people were involved. People in positions of high authority within the Lincoln administration. And he tells Bates about the night of April 26, 1865, and how it came to pass that it was not him cornered at the Garrett farm, but another man. That man was shot and killed, while Booth was already on the road to reinventing himself as John St. Helen. Bates listens intently and begins to build pictures of the course of events according to St. Helen. He wonders if his friend is insane. Bates tells St. Helen he has doubts and explains that he simply cannot believe his confession to be true. Bates asks him, Is it possible that long ago you developed an obsession with President Lincoln's assassin, which would explain your detailed knowledge of Booth's life, but over the years that obsession has become blurred with reality and you now somehow imagine yourself to be Booth? St. Helen reminds Bates he confessed when he thought he was on his deathbed and in that moment had an overwhelming need to unburden his soul before it was too late. St. Helen insists he had nothing to gain by the confession, except perhaps absolution for his sin. He challenges Bates to consider how the man killed on the Garrett farm in April 1865 was identified as John Wilkes Booth. A false identification, he reiterates. He explains letters found on the body and used to identify the dead man as Booth did belong to the president's assassin. But that is because he, St. Helen, accidentally left his papers behind and had his accomplice recover them before he rode off to the Garrett farm, never to return alive. He also argues that by the time the body was returned to Washington, D.C. for an autopsy and formal identification by people who knew Booth, that he had decomposed to such an extent that a positive identification was impossible. Bates still has doubts. The explanation may sound compelling, but does not prove conclusively that the man he has known as St. Helen for all these years is John Wilkes Booth. Furthermore, the details of St. Helen's confession are so explosive that, if true, will rewrite American history. 
The confession is just too outrageous to be believed. Bates returns to his original intuition and concludes that for some unknown reason, St. Helen has convinced himself that he is Booth. Bates and St. Helen continue their friendship through the years, though it becomes strained as a result of St. Helen's confession. In 1878, both Helen and Bates tire of life in Granbury. Bates moves to Memphis, Tennessee, and St. Helen relocates to Leadville, Colorado, in pursuit of mining adventures. They fall out of touch, and Bates puts the experience down as nothing but a strange encounter with an even stranger man. But in 1897, Bates happens upon an article published in the Boston Globe newspaper. In it, General D.D. Dana gives a detailed account of his part in the hunt for Booth in 1865. Astonishingly, General Dana corroborates St. Helen's confession from his escape from Washington, D.C. on the night Lincoln was assassinated. Bates has kept St. Helen's confession a secret since 1877. 20 years later, he reads an independent account from a credible source that, as far as Bates is concerned, can only mean one thing. St. Helen was telling the truth. To really understand St. Helen's shocking claims, we have to go back to the minutes, hours, and days immediately after President Abraham Lincoln was shot. Only then can we truly understand why in 1877, Bates realizes he has information that he must tell the world about. It is the night of April 14th, 1865, and John Wilkes Booth has just shot President Abraham Lincoln in the back of the head at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. In the chaos that follows, he flees, making his escape. Dr. Charles A. Leal, who is in the audience, rushes to the president's box. Seeing it has been barricaded from the inside, he breaks through the door. He finds Lincoln still in his rocking chair unconscious, and Mrs. Lincoln clutching her husband and begging him to wake up. She pleads with Dr. Leal to save his life. Quickly, the box fills with more doctors from the audience and soldiers keen to help. Dr. Leal checks the president's vitals, and after finding no pulse, begins searching for the wound. Unable to find it, he enlists the soldiers and they lift Lincoln out of his rocking chair and lay him on the floor. The seconds are ticking and the president's breathing is becoming more and more labored. Dr. Leal searches frantically for the wound until he finds a small bullet hole on the back of the head. He removes the congealed blood and the president suddenly breathes easier. But Dr. Leal knows he doesn't have much time. The box fills with other people, spectators and those wanting to help, and Mrs. Lincoln becomes more distressed. The doctors present gather in a corner and come to their diagnosis. It is a lost cause. The president's life cannot be saved. It is no longer a question of how to treat him, but how to ensure his last hours are as comfortable and dignified as possible. Theaters still carry a social stigma in America at this time and are seen as places of immorality. It is no place for a president to take his last breath. They decide to move him. With the help of the soldiers, they carry the dying president out of the box and out of Ford's theater with Mrs. Lincoln behind them. They are followed by hordes of people who crowd around them and obstruct their path. One of the soldiers unleashing his sword and cursing swipes at them to clear away. As they inch their way down the street, desperately looking for a suitable place for the president to be taken, 
A War Department clerk pokes his head out of 453 10th Street and ushers them inside. They move into the residence, find an empty room, and rest Lincoln on a bed. The Death Watch begins. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. At 453 10th Street, doctors have just placed Lincoln on his deathbed. Knowing they are witnessing history unfold, they monitor him closely and jot down every change in his condition. In a twist of irony, it is the very same bed that months earlier, John Wilkes Booth lay on while plotting with his conspirators to kidnap the president. Civilian police are by now aware of what has happened. The entire force is put on alert and messengers have been sent out. City residents are turning up at police headquarters giving varying accounts of what went down at Ford's theater. Police gather as much information as they can. They ask questions. Who is he? What was he wearing? Was he alone? What direction did he travel in? Frustratingly, information is fragmented and contradictory. They begin taking sworn testimony of the individuals flooding the station one by one. A team of officers head to Ford's and begin a search of the theater and surrounding area. They do not seal off the crime scene. Forensic evidence is as yet an undiscovered investigative tool. In the president's box, looters strip it bare and carry away every souvenir they can get their hands on. Senior members of the War Department have also heard the news and start frantically issuing telegraph alerts, hoping to shut down any exit roads out of the capital. If Booth is still in the city, they might still catch him yet. But the situation is about to get worse. A lot worse. Across town, another attack is underway. Six blocks away at the home of Secretary of State, William H. Seward, a tall man in a light overcoat knocks on the door. He insists to be let inside to give Seward some medicine, as he is recovering from injuries from a carriage accident. When a servant tries to stop him, the man pushes past and rushes up the stairs to Seward's bedroom on the third floor. Sensing danger, Seward's son, Fred, tries to prevent the man from getting past him. He is asleep, he insists. But at just that moment, Seward's daughter, unaware of what is happening, comes out of her father's bedroom. No, he is awake right now, she says. The man draws a revolver from his coat and places it against Fred's temple. He pulls the trigger. The revolver jams, so he raises it and then crashes it down on Fred's head. Inside the bedroom, Seward's army nurse Private George Foster Robinson hears the thud, rushes to the door and opens it. Stunned, he sees Fred with blood streaming down his face. The man rushes at Robinson with a knife and slashes him on his forehead. Seward's daughter screams for help. The attacker rushes past her and leaps on top of Seward as he lies in his bed, unable to move because of his injuries. He slashes wildly at the Secretary of State 
inflicting injury after injury until his jugular vein is exposed. Robinson, though also injured, jumps on the attacker and pulls him to the floor. In the scuffle, the man escapes, fleeing down the stairs and out of the house. As he does, he screams, I'm mad! I'm mad! When the news of a second attack at Secretary of State Seward's house emerges, the full scale of the crisis dawns on the authorities. John Wilkes Booth is not a lone assassin. He has co-conspirators, and they have just launched coordinated attacks on not just the president, but the entire country. Booth escaped Ford's theater, and Seward's attacker also escaped. Are they about to launch another attack somewhere else in Washington, D.C., or are they fleeing the city limits? The authorities know if they do not capture Booth and his co-conspirators, this nightmare may never end. As the authorities organize a response, including shutting down exit roads out of Washington, D.C. and putting the military on high alert, Booth is nowhere to be seen. He has disappeared into thin air, and his co-conspirators have not yet been identified. They must capture Booth and identify his co-conspirators before further attacks are launched. History tells us Booth quickly fled the city and went on the run for 12 days until he was cornered at the Garrett Farm in eastern Virginia. There, Corbett, a federal soldier, shoots and kills him. But in 1907, 42 years later, Bates claims the man Corbett shot wasn't Booth. His friend who went by the name John St. Helen was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth. Based on conversations with St. Helen, Bates offers a detailed account of Booth's escape from the Capitol, the full extent of the conspiracy against Lincoln's government, and how the man they cornered and killed on the Garrett farm was actually someone else. The way St. Helen tells it to Bates is, as Washington, D.C. descends into panic on the night Lincoln is shot, he seizes the opportunity to make a quick escape. He flees Ford's theater through the back entrance and jumps onto his horse, which is being kept ready for him by David Harold, a co-conspirator. Once mounted, he wastes no time and rides off at full speed towards a bridge at the east of the Potomac River. Harold follows behind. At the gate of the bridge, a federal guard blocks his path. Booth rides up to him and is forced to stop. Where are you going? The guard barks. TB, Booth replies. Where? The guard asks again. TB Road, Booth insists. Without further hesitation, the guard calls another soldier and they raise the gate to let Booth pass. Booth once more makes haste and gallops away. Leaving the capital behind them, Booth and Harold ride the rest of the night. At 4 a.m. on April 15th, they reach Dr. Samuel Mudd's house in Southern Maryland. A physician sympathetic to the Southern cause, Dr. Mudd treats an injury to Booth's leg that he sustained during his escape from Ford's theater. Dr. Mudd harbors the two fugitives until nightfall, when they set off once again. The following day, another sympathizer allows them to hide in a pine thicket at the back of his plantation. Rudy, the overseer of the plantation, informs Booth and Harold that Confederate troops are camped just south of the Rappahannock River, near Bowling Green, Virginia. He offers to arrange a meeting between the troops and Booth for a fee of $300. Once in the custody of Confederate troops, Booth and Harold can feel safe and protected. Rudy leaves the two men hiding in the pine thicket to make arrangements. He returns on April 21st and informs them they are to meet the troops at the Port Conway in Royal, south of the Rappahannock at 2 p.m. 
on April 22nd. They leave their hiding place at 6 a.m. on April 22nd, heading for Port Conway and Royal. Fearing federal forces might easily spot them on the 20-mile open country journey ahead, they arrange to be transported in the back of a wagon. Hidden under blankets, Booth and Harold make the journey without incident. Once they arrive at the Port Conway and Royal Ferry Crossing, federal soldiers are spotted in the distance. The search party is hot on their trail. A panic ensues and they rush onto the ferry and cross the river. They meet the Confederate troops waiting for them on the other side, but Booth realizes in the panic he has left photographs of his family and letters in the back of the wagon. He tells Rudy and Harold to return to the wagon and retrieve these items. Along with these personal possessions is a check that he will pay Rudy with for his services. They arrange to reunite at the Garrett farm as quickly as possible. Rudy and Harold return to collect Booth's belongings. Under the protection of two Confederate soldiers, Booth makes his way to the Garrett farm. He spends a night alone on the farm and on the following day, April 23rd, the two Confederate soldiers rush back to inform him a federal search party has crossed the Rappahannock and are heading his way. Booth rushes to a ravine north of the Garrett farm and hides. He asks the Confederate soldiers to bring a horse to him in the ravine so he can make his escape. An hour later, they do exactly that, and Booth flees. He rides for as long as he can, desperate to create as much distance between him and the Garrett farm as possible. This is the version of events St. Helen tells Bates while living in Granbury. He explains after his escape from the Garrett farm, he heads south, living a life of freedom under an assumed name. The implications are significant. If true, the man who assassinated President Lincoln never faced justice. St. Helen implicates Confederate soldiers in his confession, claiming the attacks on Lincoln and Secretary of State Seward were not the actions of an independent cell operating without the knowledge of others. Instead, the Confederate army itself aided and abetted his escape with the full knowledge that he had murdered the president. Bates has one final question for St. Helen. If he escaped the Garrett farm, then who was the man shot and killed by Corbett? It was Rudy, St. Helen argues. Rudy, the overseer who helped him escape, must have gone to the Garrett farm with Harold, as arranged, to return Booth's documents to him. Only once there, the Federal Army corners them. Harold surrenders, and Rudy is killed. Those present would assume Rudy is Booth because they do not know Booth personally, and he has in his possession Booth's personal items. To clarify, there is no evidence that Rudy ever existed. Bates hears this confession in 1877, but dismisses it. There is nothing to corroborate St. Helen's claims, and as a lawyer, he knows without evidence it is nothing but a story. They part ways and Bates continues with his life. But 20 years later, in 1897, long after his friendship with St. Helen came to an end, he reads a similar account written by General D.D. Dana of the United States Army in the Boston Globe. In the article, Dana says, I was present the night Booth and Harold crossed after Booth had shot the president. I stood in the door of the blockhouse when Booth rode up. He made some kind of answer about going to see someone who lived on the TB road. I helped open the gate, and he rode through. Dana also gives an account of how Booth and Harold hid out for a few days before crossing the Potomac River, where they are assisted by Confederate soldiers to continue their journey to the Garrett farm. This account aligns with St. Helens' timeline of events. 
Bates's legal instinct kicks in. He must verify Dana's account and prove once and for all that St. Helen is John Wilkes Booth, President Lincoln's assassin. Once he does that, he must track the man down. It has been 20 years since they bid farewell to each other in Granbury. But if St. Helen still lives, Bates is adamant he must bring him to justice. It's not just the possibility that the man who killed the president may have escaped, denying the Lincolns and the entire country justice. St. Helen's confession has wider ramifications that, if also true, would mean the man who took office after Lincoln's death is also guilty of high treason. According to St. Helen, the conspiracy to kill Lincoln involved not just a group of co-conspirators, but those openly supportive of the Southern cause and some federal agents. It included Vice President Andrew Johnson himself. Giving a full account of Johnson's involvement in the plot, he told Bates the true mastermind of Lincoln's assassination was his vice president, who on Lincoln's death, took office and became president of the United States. In 1897, Bates suddenly realizes that it was a mistake to dismiss his friend's claims 20 years prior. By doing so, he has failed his nation. He thinks back to St. Helen's claims and looks over any notes he may have kept of their conversations. He must have a clear picture of what St. Helen alleged against the then vice president before alerting the War Department. The way St. Helen explained it to Bates, on the morning of April 14, 1865, he and Harold met Johnson at the Kirkwood Hotel in Washington, D.C., where he was lodging. Lincoln had chosen Johnson as vice president in his 1864 election campaign because he felt a Southern Democrat running mate would undermine secession efforts in the South and reinforce the notion of a united America. In the meeting, they abort the original plan to abduct Lincoln and transport him to Richmond, Virginia to be held hostage. The Civil War is effectively over and Confederate forces have abandoned Richmond. Nothing would be achieved by the abduction. Booth and his co-conspirators are despondent. They have spent months planning the abduction down to every detail. For over six months, it is all Booth has thought about. He has given up acting to focus on the plot, and they have all already implicated themselves in crimes that would see them hang, whether the abduction happens or not. Their mission is a failure. According to St. Helen, Vice President Johnson believes otherwise. Will you falter at the supreme moment? Johnson asks Booth and Harold. Booth is confused. There is nothing else to be done. Are you too faint-hearted to kill? Johnson continues. St. Helen claims this is the first time the assassination of President Lincoln is suggested, and it is Johnson who advocates for it. He goes on to detail how the vice president allegedly makes arrangements for Lincoln's assassination. Johnson assures Booth and Harold that once he is inaugurated as president, after the death of Lincoln, he will protect Booth and his co-conspirators from prosecution. St. Helen tells Booth it is Johnson who arranges for the Lincolns to attend Ford's theater, without the presence of General Ulysses S. Grant. He feels General Grant may prevent the assassination by restraining Booth once he gets inside the president's box. He also claims Johnson arranges their unobstructed passage across the Potomac River immediately after. By ensuring there are no guards on duty, and gives them the code TB Road to use if anyone does try to prevent them from crossing. Finally, it is in this meeting that the attack on Secretary of State, Seward, is also conceived. 
Booth's co-conspirator Lewis Powell is tasked with assassinating Seward at the same moment Booth takes the life of Lincoln. These are explosive claims that, if proven, will have huge ramifications for the country. Johnson died in July 1875, but as far as Bates is concerned, the truth must become known. Bates is on a mission. He must get to the bottom of St. Helen's confession. He writes to Dana asking him to confirm the account he gives of Booth's escape on the night Lincoln is assassinated. Dana confirms what he wrote in the Boston Globe and sends Bates photographs of Booth. Looking at the photographs, Bates has no doubt that the man in them is the same man he knew as St. Helen. He immediately makes a copy of the photograph given to him by St. Helen when he thought he was on his deathbed and sends it to Dana. Dana writes back confirming that the man in the photo, who Bates knows as St. Helen, is John Wilkes Booth. Bates does not need any more convincing. Now he just needs to track down St. Helen so the man can go on the record with his confession. Through writing to associates across the country, he tracks St. Helen from Leadville, Colorado to Fresno, California. But he hits a dead end and can't locate St. Helen after his stay in California. Refusing to give up, in January 1898, Bates writes to the United States Secretary of War at the War Department. He lays out his findings and ends his communication with the explosive suggestion that John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin, is still at large. It takes two years for the War Department to reply. In their letter, they inform Bates that his investigation is of no interest to them. It's 1900, and Bates is at an impasse. He feels he has in his possession information that will shake the foundations of the nation. He also believes that information has been corroborated by Dana's account of Booth's escape and identification of him at St. Helen through the photographs. But no one will listen to him. Without finding St. Helen so he can attest to his confession and be physically identified as Booth by people who know him, he suspects the doors of government will continue to be closed in his face. He knows St. Helen was last living in California, but then the trail goes cold. Three excruciating years later, in January 1903, Bates catches a break. He learns of a man going by the name David E. George, who is said to have made his own deathbed confession in Enid, in the Oklahoma Territory. The autopsy on George's body concludes he is of the same age as Booth and broke his leg in the same place as Booth at Ford's Theater after shooting the president. George completed suicide, and it was during his dying moments that he told those present he was John Wilkes Booth. On further investigation, Bates learns of other similarities between George and Booth. They both have the same handwriting and share a strong resemblance. Newspapers are reporting of George's confession and rumor spreads in town that a mob will take possession of his body and burn it. Bates rushes to Enid. He makes contact with the city undertaker and morgue manager. He asks to see the body of George. To his astonishment, it is none other than St. Helen. Bates interviews acquaintances of George and Enid, compares the confessions made by him and St. Helen, looks through his personal possessions, and once more looks at photographs of all three men, Booth, St. Helen, and George. Bates is convinced they are all the same person. He believes Booth escaped capture in April 1865, lived for a while under the false name St. Helen, 
when he confessed his true identity to Bates. Then he left Granbury and took on the name David E. George. While using that name, he once more confessed to being Booth before taking his own life. Bates had hoped to find St. Helen alive. That is no longer possible. Though disappointed, he is not one to give up. Bates has one more thing at his disposal. The body of George. With no one to claim the man's estate and body, Bates organizes to do so himself. He arranges for the body to be mummified as quickly as possible, organizes transportation, and leaves the city with George in a casket. Bates continues in his quest to reveal the true identity and story behind Lincoln's assassin. With the authorities taking no notice, he decides to take matters into his own hands. In 1904, he exhibits the mummy at St. Louis World's Fair, hoping to draw public attention to the case. In 1907, he publishes his book detailing St. Helen's full confession and his investigation of George. While the mummy has some success in a drawing crowd, it becomes more of a spectacle. Most visit the touring exhibit out of curiosity and for entertainment. In 1920, Bates is tired and tries to sell it to the automaker Henry Ford, but Ford declines the offer. So he rents the mummified corpse to a carnival. In a bizarre twist of fate, the mummy is abducted from the carnival and disappears until 1923. Eventually, the man who abducted it returns the mummy to the Bates family in exchange for a reward. But then, Bates has died. His wife, perhaps unsure of what to do with the corpse of a man whose identity might never be known, sells it back to the original carnival owner who was renting it from her husband. This puts an end to any Bates family association with a mummified corpse. But that isn't the end of the saga. The mummy takes on a life of its own. For a while, David E. George, John St. Helen, John Wilkes Booth, whoever it may be, is put on display on a potato farm in Declo, Idaho. It is examined repeatedly for verification of its identity as Booth and continues to be toured across America. It causes such outrage wherever it goes that its owners receive threats that it will be lynched while health authorities regularly run it out of town. It is sold again in 1932 and toured on the back of a truck. The situation is pitiful, and the mummy is passed from one owner to another to be exhibited to a curious crowd. Then, it is seized as collateral for debt when the current owners are declared bankrupt. It disappears from public view and its whereabouts remain unknown until the 1950s. Peace is not yet in reach for the mummified corpse that many believe is John Wilkes Booth. Sometime in the 1960s, it's discovered in a Philadelphia basement. The landlady of the property sells it once more. When the new owner goes to collect, the mummy is gone. Again, it disappears from a life in the public eye. It's last seen in the late 1970s when it's once again put on show. Its current whereabouts remain unknown. The legend of Booth takes on an afterlife of its own and has plagued the imagination of the American public for generations. Over the years, thousands of people have seen a mummified corpse that its owners argue is John Wilkes Booth. It has toured the country and been exhibited in the back of trucks and barns and fairs. It has been abducted and laid forgotten in basements. Once the corpse disappears from public view, you would think that would be the end of the matter. It's not. 
doubt has set in and has become part of the legend itself. For some, such as the Booth family, the question of whether Booth was killed on the Garrett farm is personal and has never been satisfactorily answered. The official account of how John Wilkes Booth met his end disregards Bates' account and the mummified corpse he toured. Photographs were limited in circulation at the time, but using the ones they had, authorities felt confident the man killed at the Garrett farm was John Wilkes Booth. Identification of the body once it was transported to Washington, D.C. by people who knew Booth put to rest any doubt that may have existed. History tells us Booth and his co-conspirators faced justice. His co-conspirator, David Harold, captured that night on the farm, was put on trial in July 1865 and executed for his part in the conspiracy. According to the National Detective Police investigation that followed, which contradicts St. Helens' claims of grand conspiracy, George Atzerott was tasked with killing Vice President Johnson in the plot. He had second thoughts and instead headed to a bar and spent the night getting drunk. No attack was ever launched against Johnson. That did not result in Atzerodt escaping the hard hand of the law. He too was executed by hanging in July 1865 for his alleged involvement in the planning of the assassination. Lewis Powell was convicted of the attack against Secretary of State Seward and met the same fate as his co-conspirators. Dr. Samuel Mudd was sentenced to life imprisonment for his part in treating Booth's injured leg during his escape. He was pardoned in 1869 and died of pneumonia in 1883. Others who helped Booth by plotting the attack with him, harboring him while he was a fugitive, and aiding his escape also faced the news. No evidence was ever found of Vice President Johnson's involvement. As far as the authorities were concerned, the plot did not extend beyond Booth, his co-conspirators and supporters, all of whom eventually faced justice. But Bates's account of St. Helen's confession and his investigation that followed has left lingering doubts. In 2010, the descendants of Booth's brother reported they had obtained permission to exhume the body of Booth for DNA testing. In doing so, they hoped to discover once and for all if the man killed at the Garrett farm and then buried in the Booth family plot was really John Wilkes Booth. Despite this, their efforts were thwarted in 2013 by the U.S. Army Medical Command. They refused the request to compare the DNA with three of Booth's cervical vertebrae held in the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Washington. They argued the need to preserve the remains for future generations made the destructive test impossible. With no conclusive evidence, doubts continue to persist. Beneath the historical record, another version continues to bubble. It is now inextricably tied to the legend of John Wilkes Booth. The story of Lincoln's assassin does not end at the Garrett Farm on April 26, 1865. It lingers on in the spectacle of a corpse bought and sold and toured across America, and doubts that the Booth family, and many others, continue to harbor. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we travel back in time to tell the gruesome tale of Christy Kett, a young girl brutally struck down in her own home. We discover how the murderer leaves a false trail to deceive the police and cast suspicion on those closest to the victim. First, her brother, then her lover. The killer is never brought to justice, never punished, 
except by the excruciating torments of a guilty conscience. They will be haunted by the vision of Christie's bloody corpse until the day, many years later, they themselves lie dying. And the shocking truth about Christie's death is finally revealed. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Saida Ruas. Supervising editor, Derek Jennings. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Matthias Torres Soleil. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kean Ryan Morgan.